Good morning. Let's come back together, find our seats. I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here, and I'm just excited about getting back to our, our topic in our, our current series. Maybe excited is the wrong word to use because it is convicting and steps on toes, but it is um, good to let Scripture refine us. Um, it's been a while since I've talked about gophers. They still exist. They do exist. Uh, yeah. Um, every now and then we'll move our trampoline around in our backyard. And we, we the gopher problem seems like it's solved. We hardly ever see them um, after we may have um, disposed of a couple via um, air pellets. But um, <laughs> and, and so we haven't seen them in a while, but it's really interesting. Every time we move our trampoline, it seems like there's one or two mounds under the trampoline. And I don't know how this works because it doesn't matter where I put the trampoline in the backyard. That's where the one or two mounds show up. And I don't know if my kids are messing with me or whether it's really a gopher. I don't know. I, I wouldn't put either past them. But, <laughs> but what that means is underneath the surface, there is still a problem, right? There are still tunnels and everything looks fine on the surface. But underneath, there's still a problem that every now and then rears its ugly head. And every now and then comes up. Sometimes it comes up by one of the fruit trees as well. I'm not sure that's happened in a while. But um, it's just not there enough to really shoot the, I mean, dispose of the um, the little bugger. Um, because you don't see it, but there's evidence there that something is going on. Sin is a lot like that. And idolatry is a lot like that. And as we explore today how to identify idols and how to get rid of idols in our lives... We want to, to keep this in mind that there are idols we see on the surface that we commonly talked about, and then there are deeper issues, there are sins beneath the sin that we want to get to today, because unless we deal with the real problem, it just keeps coming up sometime, right? When someone um, all of a sudden flies off the handle and they're triggered, that's the word we, we have now all the time, you know, you breathe wrong and they're triggered, it's the end of the world. And that's an evidence that there's something else going on under the surface, right? Usually it's an, an idol of some sort that was threatened by what was triggered. And, and so it comes out in these emotions. And we'll talk about that as we look at some questions to ask of how we can identify idols. But I wanted to remind ourselves, two weeks ago we started our series and we defined an idol as anything that takes the place of God. Anything that takes the place of God as ultimate in our worship, in our love, and in our lives. And if you think of those two, three, thing, three things, worship, love, and lives, or trust, those are how we, we look at idols. And that's how we can begin to see idols. Anything that's a substitute for God, anything that's ultimate rather than just good, is an idol. And so we think about what we worship. What do we devote ourselves to might be a better way of, of thinking that. Is there anything that's more important that I devote myself to more than God? Anything I love more than God? Something with a higher affection? Something I'd be devastated to lose? Is there anything I trust more than God for difficulties? Do I trust in people, possessions, or positions to give me what only God can really give? And I'm just setting myself up for, for problems there. And a key phrase we used last week, and it's not original to me, but almost every author that talks about this, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. And we'll explore why that statement's true today, because God is the only one that can bear the load of being an ultimate thing. 
The only one. And, and so that's some of the ways we defined idolatry. You can go back and listen to two weeks ago if you, if you want to dig into that a little bit more. But we know that we all struggle with idolatry. It's something that we all struggle with. What do we love most? And what is our first? We, we then looked at all of scripture and we saw from page one, or actually Genesis three might be more appropriate. From Genesis three all the way to the end of Revelation, idolatry has been an issue. We're in the middle there. So idolatry is still an issue and we want to stamp it out. And so today we're going to look at the lure and the lies of idols, what they promise, what they actually deliver, and the aftermath that comes. And then we'll talk about removing idols. And part of that will be how to identify the different types of idols in our lives. Let's start with the lure and lies of idols. In fact, if there was no lure of idols, if they didn't lie and try to provide something for us, they wouldn't be an issue. Temptation is only temptation if it's something that lures us or entices us. And so what idols offer is they offer a false but appealing promise to fulfill you. They will provide the fulfillment, the pleasure, the joy or happiness that you are looking for if you just pursue them. If I just had a little more money, I would be fulfilled. I'd be happy. I'd have enough. <clears throat> Said no one ever that was trying to get money. If I just had this relationship, I'd be happy. If I just had this promotion, if I just had this house. And idols offer fulfillment through all those things and say okay yeah if you do this then then you'll be happy you'll be fulfilled they say they will fill a hole in your life but they can't because we know from ecclesiastes and from scripture that we are made in the image of god with a god-sized hole ecclesiastes 3:11 says he has made everything beautiful in its time also he has put eternity into man's heart Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, has tried everything. He has tried every idol, every way to, to satisfy himself. And nothing works. And in this case, he's saying it's because we have eternity in our hearts. We have a God-sized hole. We are, we are seeking something that being made in the image of God, God alone can provide. In fact, at the end of Ecclesiastes, he said, the end of the matter... All has been hurt. Fear God and keep His commandments. Forget all these idols. My, my end result here is none of them worked. But fear God. Keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. <clears throat> so idols promise satisfaction. What do they deliver? Crushing disappointment and emptiness. Crushing disappointment and emptiness. So they overpromise and they underdeliver. And we, we see this over and over. And the reason that they, they just offer this emptiness and disappointment is because the finite cannot fill eternity in our hearts. We are looking for the weight of the ultimate, something that will meet our deepest needs. Nothing on this planet can do that. The finite cannot do that. So idols offer us ultimate meaning. They offer us hope, love, fulfillment. If I just have power, if I just have approval, if I just have control, if I just have comfort, my life is good. But in the end, they can't deliver on any of that. And what's left is emptiness, damage, that usually leads to despair. See, despair is different from sadness. Despair is inconsolable. It comes from losing an ultimate thing rather than a good thing. 
when you lose the ultimate source of the meaning of your meaning in life, when you lose your ultimate source of hope, there's nothing else to turn to because it was ultimate. And so you're left with despair and you're left with a broken spirit that we see so much of our world damaged from. Idols will eventually fail to deliver and crush us every time. Idols will eventually fail to deliver. They will crush us every single time because they are not the infinite creator. We are worshiping the creation rather than the creator as we talked about last time. Romans one twenty five. they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They elevated the wrong things. And creation doesn't have the power of the creator. It just doesn't. Creation is always lesser than the creator. Creation will always fail in this fallen and broken world. God won't. And so I start today with a call to understand idols. That they overpromise and underdeliver every single time. And when we pursue them, we are vainly pursuing something to give ourselves happiness and hope and fulfillment that is guaranteed to fail. And that's insanity. It's insanity. Tim Keller says it this way. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. I want to read a long quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis had so much good to say about this too. And this is one that I'm like, I'm not even going to try to restate this. Most people if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country to visit or first take up some subject that excites us, these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking, he goes on to say, I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or unsuccessful holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. And even if we have the best things in life, they can't fill an eternity-sized hole in our hearts that God intentionally put in us to draw us back to himself. But yet we seek after these things because it seems so much easier than following God. But then we get to the aftermath. And don't forget when we're considering idols to consider the aftermath that they, they overpromise, fail to deliver, and then they leave us shattered and broken. So what do we do when idols don't satisfy? How do we respond to the aftermath of being shattered and broken? How how do we even process that? Turn to Genesis 29, and we're going to look at a couple of major passages today with a lot of side verses. I encourage you to read a lot of these during the week because we can't go through the um, the entire passage of each of these. But Genesis 29, and and this is the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. 
And, and just to remind ourselves, Jacob is, is one of the patriarchs and, and God is, he's, he's the one that God has chosen to continue Israel's line through and ultimately to bring the Messiah. But Jacob had a lot of problems. Actually, everyone in this story has a lot of problems. And, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we know the Bible is real. It doesn't gloss over these things. But Jacob, in, in all of his problems, he, he's traveling and he goes, he sees Uncle Laban, and Laban says, oh, your family, come on in. And then he sees Rachel. And his heart just starts pounding, and, and he's just a, a, a flutter, and this is the most beautiful creature on the planet he has ever seen. And he is smitten. Now, it's not wrong to be smitten, but from the whole story, He is oversmitten. Something that is good becomes ultimate. The dude is willing to work seven years for her. That is smitten. That is making an idol of someone. And then when it doesn't work out and he gets Leah instead, he's willing to work another seven years because all of his hopes, all of his dreams are in this beautiful woman. And we see it throughout the text and we see how things are worded. And he, he, he gets married, he goes to bed with his hopes and dreams, and he wakes up with Leah. And he's forced to confront idolatry. And he's angry because that's what idols do when they're, they're not met. And he works for Rachel, and it's just a mess, and it doesn't stop there. We get to, to Genesis 29, and where Leah wasn't who he wanted, it's who he had. And then Rachel and Leah, they start to get into the sisterly battle, which I, I guess sisterly rivalry is a thing. I, I know brother rival is, but um, I have a brother, but yeah, I never had that with my sister. But these sisters are now going at it, and they are, are prizing ultimately two things throughout the story. And the words say, and we're going to get into that, they want kids. And that is one of their deep desires, and in their culture that's understandable, but that was an idol to them. I will be happy if I get kids. And Leah wanted her husband's love because she knew she wasn't loved. And so she would do anything for kids and for love. Those were her idols. And she would compromise. She would do whatever it takes. And the story, there's so much to this story that we can't read today. But I want to just glance at the first part of it. Genesis 29, we'll start at verse 31. And so this is a, a little bit after the, he's married to both women, sisters. That's going to work out. And um, then we read in verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Oh, that's setting up for not good things. It's setting up for a circle of vicious dissatisfaction and crushing disappointment because what was ultimate to these ladies is their husband and their kids. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, and catch what she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. What's her idol? Now my husband will love me. That's my hope. That's my dream. This child's going to give it to me. It didn't work. She conceived again in verse 33 and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. So, so we, we, that's how we know she's not loved. She now is escalating. She's now hated. It's this self-loathing, this putting herself down. He has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. This time he'll love me. I've given him two sons. 
Rachel, nothing. I don't care if she's beautiful. I've given them sons. That's what matters. But she's hated. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. Third time's a charm. Because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived and bore again and bore a son. And said, now catch the difference in phrases in verse 35. And said, this time I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So, so the first three, she's dealing with idolatry. Everything's for her husband. It took four pregnancies, four sons, before she finally turned to God and praised him. She finally stopped saying, this time he'll love me and started trusting Yahweh. Interestingly enough, the line of Christ would come through Judah, the son that stopped her idolatry. Sort of cool. Now, I wish that's where the story ended. I wish everyone learned their lessons and walked with God after that. We know she didn't. We know this was a short period of time, and then she ends up just going back on everything, and and you have servants being given to Jacob and all this weird stuff happening. But for a moment, she praised God. Now, hopefully Rachel's better. Hopefully there's no idolatry there. And so we get to chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And so you see the seeds of idolatry of wanting something so deeply, something becoming ultimate coming in. She And, and here's how you know it. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Okay, maybe she didn't say it that way. But do you see how her emotions and how her hold on having children was over-exaggerated? This was ultimate, not just something good. And it's ugly. Jacob's anger in verse 2 was kindled against Rachel. And this is where he, he actually inadvertently deals with idolatry here. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God? Well, actually, dude. Yeah, you were. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He recognized kids were her idol. It was her trust idol, and he was her trust idol to provide those. And so she's mad. Give me kids or I will die. An over-exaggerated response, which is what idols do to us. Rachel also is looking for power, and power over her sister was an idol as well. Jump down to verse 7. Rachel's servant. So so now the, the, the sisters are fighting and feuding, and they're not giving enough kids. So they're like, hey, we have servant girls. Let's give those to Jacob. Have more kids. And so in verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. And so another, her idols, yes, were kids. She didn't have to fight for the love of her husband. She had that. But she was fighting for power over her sister. And she finally prevailed. And was she happy? Did it provide? Did it fulfill? No. In fact, when they leave, we see her stealing Laban's household gods, which should be problematic that he even had such a thing, but she steals his household gods, and then to protect that, she has to lie to keep these idols in her life. 
And this is just a long story to say idolatry overpromises, underdelivers every time, and the aftermath is ugly and brutal. See, when when an idol is, is taken from us or when we aren't getting what we want, then we have several choices of how to respond. We can blame the things that disappointed us, the idols. And if we blame them and say, well, that's why I'm not happy, then we either move on to others or we double down, we take things into our own hands, which is what we saw Rachel and Leah doing. We're going to use servant girls. Later, we're going to buy mandrakes. We're going to do all this stuff. And it's, it's this idolatry of family and kids. The other option when our idols are threatened is we can blame ourselves or when we don't get what we want. We can blame ourselves, self-loathing and depression. We see that. I am hated or I'm going to die. I, just this, this, this inability to see truth. Or when idols disappoint, we can blame the world. We can just blame everything around us, just spew the hatred, the cynicism, the, the emptiness. Or the last option when idols fail to deliver is we can reorient our entire focus to God, which is what we saw Leah do for a moment. She had it right for a moment. And she reoriented her focus on who God is. See, all of the disappointment from idols, all of the dissatisfaction when we are hurt, when we are angry, when we are frustrated, all of that should instead of driving us back to other idols, instead of driving us to to hate ourselves and to get down on ourselves, they should all drive us to seeking who can satisfy, who is enough. And that can only be God. God is the only one that can bear the weight of being ultimate in our lives. Nothing else can satisfy. And when nothing else can satisfy, C.S. Lewis's conclusion was, that must mean I'm made for another world. I have eternity in my heart. See, all of this comes together. And so the lure and lie of idols, they overpromise, underdeliver, leave an aftermath of either continued idolatry or if we choose a different direction, seeking God for fulfillment. So how do we get rid of idols? How do we remove idols out of our lives? And my first point is you can't. We're done. No, no. <laughs> you can't. We simply can't remove idols. It's impossible because we are a creature made to worship. We can't remove them, but we can replace them. See, we will love something. We will have something ultimate in our lives. We will seek something. And so just removing idols and not replacing them, we're just leaving a void that, as Jesus said with demons, it's just filled again. The house is clean. Someone else comes in. But rather, we can't just remove them, we replace them with a love for God. We replace them with a dependence for God. This is why Paul, whenever he says to put off the old man, put off these things, put off these things, he always follows it with put on these things, put on a love for God, put on following God, put on righteousness. See, we always have a first love. What we're talking about in a series on idolatry is determining what that first love is, not whether or not we have a first love. And we know from Scripture we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest commandment. That is our first love. We saw as we did the biblical overview, Ephesus had lost their first love. It was no longer God. It was no longer chasing after God. 
But for them, it was theology and doctrine and being right. So we identify idols, but we we can't remove them on our own. We can replace them, though, by trusting God to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. To do this, I have three steps this morning that I want to run through in our last half hour together. First step, we need to speak God's truth to ourselves of the futility, stupidity, and damage idols cause. I sort of wanted to put like 10 more words there because we could go on and on. But we need to speak God's truth. We need to remember, remind ourselves over and over and over. We need to remind ourselves of the futility, stupidity, and damage idols cause, especially to our hearts. See, what happens when we have idols in our lives? They always disappoint. We already talked about that. But they often disappoint destructively. They often leave rubble and shambles, like a bomb going off in our heart, because we've trusted the wrong things. There are a ton of verses that we can go to for this, but I think Romans 1 is a great section that that illustrates what idols can do in our hearts, the futility, the stupidity, and damage they cause. And and in Romans 1.22, we see the first part of that damage is idols control and destroy by opening the door for all kinds of evil. When, When we fall into idolatry, when we don't love God first, it opens the door for all kinds of evil in our lives. In Romans 1, we see three different sections that says love God most, worry, don't, don't fall into idols, and we see the, the, the results of idols in each of them. So Romans 1, 22, and just listen to this list. We're not going to go through each item, but starting at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they've chased idols, right? They've chased creation rather than the creator. Something else has their heart rather than God. Then in verse 24, we see the results. Therefore, God gave them up, which literally means to hand over to the power of someone. So they're under the power of idols. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Idolatry has become a gateway to controlling lust, binding impurity, and much, much more. Because it just opens the door for other things to try to capture our hearts. In this case, all of them are a type of idolatry. Lust, trying to fulfill ourselves with pleasure. Impurity, trying to fulfill ourselves with whatever we want. Dishonoring of bodies among themselves. So then verse 25 goes back to stay away from idolatry. Because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then verse 26, the results of following idols. For this reason, God gave them up, let them be under the control of these things, to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so again, we see idolatry and the results. Idolatry of worshiping creation stuff, what we see around us rather than God. The result here is giving them over to dishonorable dishonorable passions. And he, he outlines homosexuality here which is a result of idolatry. 
It's a result of usually elevating self and your desire for what you want and to easily fulfill and gratify yourself. That, that is an idol, usually of comfort, and it comes out in homosexuality. And again, idolatry, not loving God most, is a gateway for just awful results. And in case we don't get it, Paul does the same sequence again. In verse 28, we come back to idolatry. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and the idea is to acknowledge Him as supreme, as over everything, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, idolatry, the results, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow. That's a list. And Paul is saying all of these things come when our our first love isn't Christ. When, When we look to other things to fulfill what's ultimate in our lives, we open the door for all of these things. This is the worst gateway drug imaginable. And if we're to begin to deal with idols in our lives, we need to speak God's truth about what they really are. When we have something more ultimate than God, that is not just a light thing that I'm going to confess and get over. I am opening myself to all kinds of, of crud in my life. All kinds. See, not only do, in idolatry, do we love our idols, and not only do we trust them to provide what's ultimate, if we do those things, we end up having to obey them. And they end up having control over us. It's a form of worship. Because we have to serve them if we love them and trust them as ultimate in our lives. So if we love money, I must have more. If I trust money, I, I'm looking for security. My barns are, it, my, my barns need to be full. I need to have a plan for the rest of my life. And so when I love and trust money, now I have to obey it. I have to make decisions based on how I can have more money for, for maybe pleasure or how I can have more money for security. I now am controlled in my decision making by what I love. Where our heart is, there will our treasure be also. That's going to come up over and over. And so we see in that Romans passage, this whole list of things all can be tied back to idolatry. Understand the seriousness of it. The second thing idols do, if we're to identify them, idols control and destroy by opening the door. This is still part of step one, speak God's truth. The second thing that if we're speaking truth, idols distort our thinking and our feelings. They just wreck our minds and, and make us start to spin truth to protect our idols because if we lose our ultimate, we, we fall into despair. And so we will protect what is ultimate in our lives. In Romans 1, it says they became fools in the first verse, a debased mind. They, they couldn't hold on to it anymore. I think Jonah is a great instance of this. And you can read this during the week. We won't go there. But if you remember Jonah chapter 4, you know, so, so chapter three, Nineveh comes to Christ and it's great and Jonah's the best evangelist of all times. And in chapter four, he's ticked off at God because people came to know him. 
And we know from Jonah, he was suffering from the idol of vengeance and the idol of nationalism. These people raped and pillaged my people. The only thing I want for them is God's destruction and judgment on them. And that became an idol to him. I want to see vengeance. So much that he he fled to Tarshish in chapter 1. Had a moment in the belly of the great fish of some clarity and even acknowledged it was idolatry. Chapter 3 obeys, but chapter 4, the the surface idol hasn't been fixed of vengeance. And so it comes back and he's angry at God. And it distorted his thinking. It distorted his feelings. It, It said that the fact that people came to God displeased him. That's, that's wrong thinking. It's distorted thinking. He blames God for saving them. That's craziness. It's crazy thinking. I know that you're loving. I know that you'll relent if people repent. That's why I didn't want to go, God. And then you see this over-exaggeration of feelings that are out of control because idols distort our feelings. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. Remember who else we saw that? Rachel, right? Because when we lose what's ultimate in our lives, we're in despair, and what else can we do? Take my life from me, he says. The the Lord even says, do you think it's good for you to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah's answer is, yes! Man, man, get a clue. But he held so tightly to his idol of vengeance and of nationalism and of retribution that he couldn't see straight. He couldn't think clearly. And his emotions were all out of whack. And in verse 9, after God brings up a plant and destroys the plant, he's trying to teach him. He says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Even angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And idols will skew your thinking to justify following after them. They will skew your feelings. We, I see it all the time. Because we're seeing idolatry, we have to understand that it's worship. And we have to see it through the lens of what we worship because that's our, our ultimate. So when I talk with maybe a couple that's having sex outside of marriage and I'm trying to convince them, well, that idol is filling something they think they need, either comfort or approval or some or, or power in some cases. It's filling something they think they need that they're not willing to have filled by God. And so I hear all kinds of crazy rationalizations like, well, the Bible says it's okay. Oh, really? Show me where. Well, it doesn't say it's wrong. Okay, I can show you where it does. Well, that's not what those verses really mean. Well, I don't know. That's what they say. And, and I've had this conversation and there is no rational, there, there's no going anywhere with it because they're not rationally getting to that point. They are following what's ultimate in their lives, their idols, and how dare we threaten that? We'll do anything to keep an idol. We'll even adjust scripture. I, I'm seeing that all over in churches when it comes to even the role of men and women. And whether there are differences and differences in roles, but equality. And man, idols are coming up all over the place and people are getting irrational and saying crazy things about Scripture. Idols destroy, destroy, distort our thinking and feelings. 
two other quick things of, of identifying idols or, or speaking truth about idols, rather. Um, they also separate us from God. In the Ezekiel 14 passage, you can read, but basically God says, why are you separating yourself from me by going after idols? If you come to me with idols, he said, I will set my face against you. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. Yep. God hates idolatry. He is a rightfully jealous God. He's the only one that can be ultimate in our lives. And so he wants to be ultimate in our lives. And the last one is idols destroy other lives around us. This is A, B, C, and D under step one. Idols destroy other lives around us. As idols don't deliver, we get disillusioned, we spiral down, we put that weight on everyone around us, and we destroy the relationships around us. Think Rachel, Leah, Jacob, the destruction of those relationships. So step number one, speak God's truth about idols. Understand just how evil they are. Step number two of how we get rid of idols, we've got to identify our idols. We've got to identify them and confess them. Call idolatry sin. Come to God. If we confess our sins before God, He is faithful and righteous and will forgive our sins. And we we have to come to a series like this saying we all struggle with idols. We all struggle with what's ultimate in our lives. And so the question is, can we get through the series and say, okay, God, show me what I struggle with rather than I'm glad I don't struggle with anything. Because we all have idols in our fallen selves. And so there's all kinds of ways that we can figure out how to identify idols. And, and we need to start to call idols what they are and call them idols. One of the ways that we can tell is what do we do when our idol is threatened? See, when we center our lives on an idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response will be panic, will be frustration. And so I put in there 10 questions of maybe just starting to identify idols in our lives. Where do your thoughts go when, when nothing is demanding your attention? What do you daydream about? That'll often show you what your first love is. That will often show you what your idol is. Do you think about God, His glory and grace? Or do you think about what will happen if I actually make enough money? What will happen if that person actually fell in love with me? What will my children be if I was able to get them into this school? Where our mind goes when we're at leisure shows us where our heart is at. Second question is, what do you worry about most? Especially about losing or something you're not getting. Is there anything that you would say, man, I just don't think I could go on if I lost this? Think about Abraham. What we talked about two weeks ago, going up the mountain with Isaac. He had to be thinking, what will I do if I lose my son? What will I do if, if I actually sacrifice my son like God is asking me to do? And God was dealing with the love in his life and what is his first love? What do I worry about most? Another question, what do you spend your money on and time most effortlessly? What do you spend your money and time on most effortlessly? You know, some people spend a lot of money on, on clothes and houses and vacations because their money is serving the idol of human approval and comfort. 
Others will, will, like we've talked about, sock money away instead of giving it away because security is their idol. Money is and time are great indicators of where our idol is. One author said, where our money flows effortlessly is always our greatest love. Next question. And this one I think is so key. Where do you have uncontrollable emotions like anger? Where are you triggered? Where you're triggered might be an idol. Might be a whole idol structure of tunnels underneath the surface of your lawn. Anger and bitterness when someone or something stands in the way of me or something that is my ultimate value. If you're angry, if you get angry a lot, ask the question, is there something here too important to me? Something I have must have at all costs. You know, I, I get angry in competition, especially when unfair things happen. It's probably revealing some idols to me, some idols of, of, of power, control, justice. Because I need to look where my emotions go, and that will tell me where my, my idols are. Keller's wife says this, pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. And that's powerful. When do you get most upset? It's a great way to detect idols. What about anxiety or fear? It's sort of idols in the future. What if I lose this thing I love? What if this happens? What, What if? And that all deals back with idolatry. Fear is often a signal of idolatry, an idolatry of control. Despair and guilt. Am I so down on myself because I've lost or failed at something that I think is a necessity when it's not? Again, I'm putting something as ultimate other than God. So where do you have uncontrollable emotions like anger? And find, or another question, this one is also just so good. What unanswered prayer or frustrated hope has embittered you toward God or made you question your faith or trust? See, if, if God answers our prayer and he says no, and we get bitter and we get frustrated, that means something is more ultimate than God. Our trust is in something other than God, and we don't trust that his ways are best. It's an issue of idolatry. Now, I'm not saying we're not sad sometimes. Sad moves on. Sad trusts God. It's not the end of the world. Despair and bitterness control us and their tentacles surround our heart. It's an ultimate thing you rely on and love most that has been taken from you and it breaks your spirit. Five other things there. What do those closest to you say? This is a great way to see idols. What do you use to comfort yourself when things get bad or difficult? Or feel better. Your your comfort go-tos might be idols, other than ice cream. (laughs) What makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I the most proud of in my life? And maybe that shows itself by what do I want to make sure people know about me? Early on in the conversation. You got to make sure they know that. What would really make you happy is a great question for sensing idolatry. These are just questions to help us start to identify idols in our lives. And step three, ask God to replace your desire for your idol with the highest love and trust for him. 
Ask God to replace your desires for your idol with the highest love and trust with him. So step one was no truth about idols. Step two was identify them and confess them in your life. Step three is saying, I can't do this on my own. God, replace this idol with a love for you and a trust for you. This isn't easy. It wasn't easy for Abraham as he went up the mountain with Isaac. In fact, the times our idols are, are, are threatened and starting to disappear, those can be some of the most painful times in our lives. That bitterness and despair can come in. But just as Abraham had to, to obey God and trust that God had a plan that was beyond him, we have to do that same thing. Obey, loosen our graf, grasp, and let God remove our idols. Maybe God needs to remove wealth. Maybe God needs to remove health. Maybe God needs to remove relationships that aren't pleasing to Him. Maybe God needs to remove the honor that you feel of certain areas of your life or the security that you need. If you get to a point where you, you feel like you can't lose any of those or else you'll die, it's ultimate and it's an idol. One author wrote, as many have learned and later taught, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That is so true. It's part of our story for how I went into ministry. God systematically took away the security in our lives in every stinking area of our lives. Not bitter. (laughs) I was at first until finally he broke us to a point of saying, okay, God, your will, not mine. And he tore those idols out. And and, and if you, you think of Chronicles of Narnia and Eustace, and, and when he became a dragon and Aslan tore with his claws that idolatry out of his heart, that's, it hurts, but it's worth it. See, we need to replace what we love, remind ourselves of the gospel over and over. And we're on each of our deep idols. We're going to talk about this more. Set our minds on things above. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's a key verse for replacing idols. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. All of this is is temporary. You've died. The sin, the stink, the stench. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds on things above. Love God. See the beauty. Glory in him. Let your imagination think about God and his attributes and what he's doing. Make him more attractive in your heart than your idol. That's how we begin to replace idols. We speak truth about them. We identify them. And we ask God, beg God, to replace them. I want to end with one last thought that sort of leads into the next part of our series. As we identify idols, as we ask God to replace them, we need to be thinking in terms of what is the real idol here? What is the real issue? And we think surface idols, what I'm calling surface idols, those things that are obvious, okay? So, and, and we keep mentioning them, right? Money can be an idol, right? What else can be an idol? Surface idols, give me some. Position. Family. 
power. We'll, we'll get to that. That'll be an underlying one. Um, relationships, your spouse, your career, your religion, your success. All of these things can be surface idols. And, and those are important to deal with. But where we want to go from here, and, and if, if we're going to identify idols correctly, as, as we talked about, we need to understand there's often idols beneath the idols. There's often sin beneath the sin. So what is motivating these things? And we're, we're calling those deep idols or source idols, some authors call them. And these are the motivations, the heart level that we don't always think about, but usually are driving the, the surface idol. And so I mean, let me give an example. Let's take money again. That's, that's always the easy one. An idol can serve any of the deep idols. And the, the four deep idols we'll talk about is power, approval, comfort, and control. And some, some people have more than that. Those are the sort of the four standard in Christendom to talk about. And, and so if we think of money as a surface idol, our, our, when we make an idol out of money, it always ties back to one or more of these deep idols. Okay? If I have a deep idol of power that, that I just have this incessant need for power, I am going to use money to manipulate and control people. I am going to use money to, to get what I want to, you know, I've, I've had someone say, or I've heard someone say, I'll write you out of my will unless you, that's using money for power over somebody. And power and control are closely related. Difference though, control is, is more wanting to control my circumstances. So think not so much control over people, that's power, but control over circumstances and things. And so those people use their money, and money again can be an idol, to live modestly, to store up, so that way they're secure. They will never have anything happen to them that they can't handle. And that's an idol of control. Approval can be a deep idol. The desire for acceptance, the desire for people to like me. And so the money then comes out of that. The, the root is a, approval. It displays itself as I'm going to spend on people. I'm going to give great gifts. I'm going to gain acceptance. Now, gifts are great if it's out of love, but when it's to gain acceptance or to make people like you, to look attractive, we're giving power to the deep idol of approval. Comfort. That shows itself with money is I'm going to buy whatever I want. I'm going to buy whatever toys I want. Amazon and I are tight. Because I'm going to meet my every whim and my every need. And we feel superior. We, it's easy to feel superior, like especially if, if, if I'm using money as to, to satisfy my idol of control. I can feel superior to spenders out there. Well, you're not being wise. Now, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise, but when it becomes ultimate, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes the ultimate thing. So so take all of this and, and put it together. But that person can look down on someone else who just spends money for comfort or, or for pleasure. What an idiot. They're such a sinner. Anything that becomes ultimate is sin. It, it is not uncommon for me as I work with couples to have couples that both have money as an idol, but for different root idols or different, different source idols. And so they'll be at odds. One's a saver, one's a spender. They're both generally making money their idol. They just have different source idols. So so it looks completely different, but man, one 
has to hold as much as they can. The other, man, just let me have some, some of what I want. And I see this over and over and over again. So as I close, here's the thing. We're going to explore these in the next four weeks. I'm not going to get real deep into them now. But if we only deal with the surface idol and we don't deal with the root idol or the deep idol, it's just going to come in another way. Another surface idol will pop up. If my idol's money and I deal with it and I have self-control and I have people holding me accountable and my checkbook's closed so that way I can't spend anything, my idol of comfort's just going to come out in a different way because I haven't dealt with the root, haven't dealt with the deep idol. And so let's go on a journey together in the next four weeks, a hard one, to say what are our deep idols? We all have them. What drives us? And this is complex. It's usually more than one. It can be different things for different, um, for different source idols or surface idols. But how do we replace these with a love for Christ? And how does the gospel reveal itself in each of these areas? So each generates a different set of hopes, a different set of fears, a different set of manifestations, but it's all still idols. This is why sometimes with sins, we keep fighting against the same sin. You know, the, the, the young man or, the, or any man that's dealing with porn and is like, I just can't beat this. I just can't beat I, I, I have covenant eyes. I have people holding me accountable and it just, I can't beat it. Maybe it's because we're not dealing with the root idol, the deep idol that's underneath it. And we haven't given that to God. And so we're just going to keep coming back like a dog to its vomit to our surface idol. Idols destroy. They overpromise. They fail to deliver. The aftermath is brutal. So let's get rid of them. Let's explore these deep idols in the next four weeks and ask God to do a work here at Village. Let's pray. Lord God, search us as a church. Know our hearts. Try our ways. See if there's any evil in us. Lord, in the weeks to come, reveal our deep idols. Those things we hold tightly to and we don't even know we're doing it. Lord, so I ask you to turn on the light in some dark basement areas that we can better serve you, that we can better love you as ultimate in our lives. Lord, challenge us for anything that has replaced you. Because all of that is just wreaking havoc in our lives. And Lord, you want us to love you. You want us to trust you. You want us to worship you. Lord, may you be ultimate in our lives. In your name, amen.